50 years ago. The show that looks back to the episode that aired in 1970 and looks at the differences between then and now. This week, episode 5 of The Ambassadors, Twang of Death, in which we try our very best not to explode into, whilst in, or when getting out of, space. I am Ben. I am Luke. And I am Nick. And here we are, and here we go, into the news from 1970. Dominating the news for the entire week, the world unites via television to watch with horror, anxiety and relief as Apollo 13 suffers an explosion which damages its power, electrical and life support systems whilst in flight. NASA and the astronauts abandon the mission and work to get the capsule back to Earth. This successful failure safely splashed down on Friday the 17th of April, having gotten the crew further than any human has got from the Earth before or since. Mars probe or no Mars probe. So about 56 hours into the mission, what happened was they were doing a routine operation of stirring the oxygen tanks. Uh, I think it was oxygen tank number two. And... There's a little bit of an insulation on the wires that was incorrect, and that ignited. And, you know, with oxygen, kaboom! So that blows up. That starts to leak the other oxygen, oxygen tank in the uh, service module. That's the bit, the main bit where they're living for their outward journey. So they have to go and use the lunar module as a lifeboat, because the command module, which is a bit that they land in that little triangular bit, um, that can only be used for re-entry. So they go into the lunar module and somehow they have to make something that's only designed to keep two men alive for two days, have three men four days. And they somehow did it because NASA's awesome. So what sort of repercussions did this have for science? So uh, they actually did a few experiments, mainly uh, taking pictures of the Earth uh, to do with clouds and uh, whether or not you could tell with satellites the, the height of clouds, I believe is what I read. Um, but also, this and furthest uh, missions to the moon show that with the tools available in the 70s, it was quite scientifically boring. There wasn't much to discover. And, of course, this gives a good excuse to political leaders on what they did next, Ben. Yes, indeed. Whilst Apollo 13 is deemed, quote, NASA's finest hour despite being the successful failure, as I've previously mentioned, the world begins to recognise all too well the risks of manned spaceflight. For a little while, at least. Apathy always wins. Moon missions continued as far as 1972, where I believe the budget cuts, which we recognised earlier this year, set in, and NASA instead shifts its focus to the Skylab project instead and then cooperation with the Soviet Union and other countries with space shuttles through into the 1980s, and ultimately towards the International Space Station and all it does. Politically, space is still a boastful statement to, to go towards. Indeed, whether you're a nation or a private company, 
whilst genuine science purports to go on in the background whilst political leaders throw out their chests and say, to space! Yeah, no, this is definitely like the beginning of the end of space travel. Obviously, manned space travel. But once we get to the, the Challenger, that pretty much kills all interest in space. So we're beginning that process of where we end up, where we are today, where there's very little interest in space travel. But ultimately, space travel is still in the minds and dreams of people. And indeed, they can write fiction. Luke. So what's interesting is just how little changes concerning the aftermath of Apollo 13. It fits so neatly into a three-act structure, and it's a good old story about overcoming adversity, which everyone always loves. If it had failed, then moon missions would have taken a bit of a hit in terms of fiction. But the thing is, is that there's already too many other things going on with the public's view of space that are more interesting than Apollo. Because in the decade of the 60s, you have this wacky far future where everyone's in a bit of an awe of space. But between the 70s and 1977, everything gets a bit more political. Once Star Wars comes along, everything changes massively. But that's far in our future in terms of 1970 is all we care about, right? But I would like to end this section about fiction by three things that I found while looking for fiction about Apollo 13. One... Choose the Fate of Apollo 13, which is a kid's book, a choose-your-own-adventure about Apollo 13. Hopefully, you can make the astronauts die horribly in many different ways. That's what I would have liked when I was young. There was a book called Counting on Catherine, the African-American mathematician who was a hidden hero of Apollo 13. And you also have Hashtag Houston 70, which is which is people on the ground talking about Apollo 13 through imagined social media posts of how it would have happened nowadays. So that's just sort of strange things I found on Google. So there you are. That's your 50th anniversary look into the Apollo 13 space mission. And now the news in brief, because this time it was mostly just Apollo 13. The Conservatives of Great Britain released their campaign guide for the forthcoming election trying to promote optimism in the face of apathy, cynicism and disillusion that the public are apparently getting with the Labour government. The Home Office is setting up a working party to examine the range of punishments against out-of-line prisoners, including a review on the dietary punishment of just eating bread and drinking water for one day. And the Inner London Education Authority is set to ban corporal punishment in primary schools. And with that, we will beat the news to a close. And we shall get into The Ambassadors of Death, episode 5, aired Saturday, the 18th of April. This episode finally relents, sort of, and sends the Doctor into space to investigate what the alien threat is, but not after further conniving from the conspirators of death. It's a back-and-forth game between the heroes and the villains, and it does go on a bit. This is an episode where everyone's just talking about how brilliant and exciting the next episode is going to be, as opposed to really be that interesting. I mean, the big thing that happens in this episode is that the... I, I, 
can't even remember what it's called. The Mark 13 fuel variant uh, ratio. I think it's the, the Mark 3 variant. Wonderful. Fuel? I mean, we, we spend about 10 minutes of um, uh, evil Roger Moore going around just spinning valves or whatever. Yeah, he's no saint. <laughs> well done. Hey. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, we spend 10 minutes just watching him running around and just spinning valves in quite clearly not a space port, but whatever, you know. <laughs> mm. So let's go towards the future by talking about this episode in greater detail. The Brigadier saves the Doctor from being touched in an inappropriate place by an ambassador of death, and then it strolls out the door before making it combust a little. Dr Lennox and Liz concoct their next escape plan for Lennox to try out, whether he likes it or not. The ambassador of death returns to its prison as ordered by the conspirators of death. One of them sounds Irish, and I'm not sure if that's because the actor is Irish or if it's a terrible coincidence by which the Irish are being labelled as terrorists, saboteurs or just goons for hire. But I'm mindful at this point in time of the Irish Republican Army and the developing troubles in Northern Ireland and consequently attacks on mainland Britain from this point onwards. It's just a malignant fault of mine that I thought I'd bring up. But um, the whole stereotype of Irish people doing lowly jobs and being like the rubbish cheap ones was a big thing at the time. It, it's completely died now in Britain. The idea that, you, you know, like having an Irish builder would be like the one who bodges it and stuff. But that was a thing 50 years ago. So it might also be riffing on that as well as the whole IRA angle. No, you know, at this point, we're, we're, we're only like, what? Seven years after, um, when you know, when you see signs of no, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish, sort of thing, mm. but not that long after that. Is Flynn, Flynn, his name's Flynn, it's Tony Harwood. Okay, his name's Flynn, therefore, he's probably an Irish. Flynn's an Irish name, isn't it? Yes, yeah, his name's Flynn, it's, it's Irish, he's an islander. Mm. In which case, point. In which case, Ben's point very much stands, as do my additions to his point. Um. Also, this early in the episode, what we get is Benton turns up just after the resolution of the cliffhanger, and there's no fanfare. The brigadier just treats him as some guy. The doctor doesn't even look at him. Doesn't go, "Oh, Benton, my old chap," or whatever. Nope. Benton's just there, and then Benton's gone. I think this, to an extent, shows the differences, A, in the way the Doctor's portrayed 50 years ago and now, and also the way people watch television, because when the Brigadier turns up in Speared from Space, the Doctor does a bit of, oh, hello, Brigadier, old chap, but it's not like some massive thing that the Brigadier's there. He just would be there. Nowadays, it's much easier to have a fan base around a character because you can watch it 10 million times. You know, the amount of people who were reading the Target novelizations 10 million times back in the 70s, had they even started them yet? I suppose they sort of had. No, 1973. Well, there you go, right? 
once they're out, they're out. And there was no target novelization to read. So how would you be a fan of Benton? Why would you even care that he's there? They just wanted someone and he's there. He was probably a good mm -hmm. person to work with or something. You raise that and I counter-raise you with oh. the apocryphal story from John Levine that he was basically brought back because he was fan service from a group of women working in the factory in the north somewhere? I would say that doesn't exactly prove me entirely wrong because if your idea of fan service is some tarts making linen, then... Uh, uh, that what does that say about the levels of fan service fifty years ago and now? Let's compare John Barrowman and um, whatever the hell it was called when he comes back yes, for no reason. Quite, yeah. Fan service has completely changed, and I apologise to all the linen making tarts. I'm sure you're lovely. Mm. Well, at least Benton acts like a sergeant in unit in here, doesn't he? There's a purpose to him being there, even. In as much as he's just another soldier. Mm. Yeah. He's just part of the ambiance. He's a unit ambiance. Well, well there we go. I mean, if you're a director and you knew that this guy was reliable a couple of years earlier playing unit soldier, why not bring him back? Yeah. Indeed, that's what they've just done. I've literally just brought up the complete history novel and yeah, that's basically what they did. What, 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 what? They, they had originally um, written for just a unit sergeant, but then they decided, ah, screw it, let's promote Benton, which is I what they did. I told you, I'm so right, I'm so brilliant at my job. Well done. Yay. Let's move on. Liz guilt trips Dr. Lennox into trying to defect towards unit. And then the Doctor gets back to trying to get the recovery capsule up into space alongside Professor Cornish, and gets held up, as usual, by, quote, red tape, as well as the protestation of General Carrington, who wants to destroy the alien influence instead. So Lennox utters the line, all the phones are monitored, after Liz says, why don't you just call? And what's interesting now is everybody knows that their communications are monitored now, but they don't care. Whilst 50 years ago, this idea of your communications being monitored, phone calls being monitored was was horrifying thought and mm. people knew that it could be done but didn't think it was done very often I mean, this brought down Nixon after all, not long after this, just the idea of people monitoring calls and whatnot. Um, yeah, it's interesting how we've changed and we've become a lot more blasé about government snooping and how it takes a political scandal to bring it into the forefront of people's minds a la Nixon or Snowden. Mm, and, and the responses to both those scandals is telling. Um, that brings down an American president, whilst the Snowden one uh, didn't even get swept under the carpet because it got, you know, everyone knew about it. The government couldn't cover it up anymore. People just didn't mm. care. It becomes so, what's the word, ingrained into the public consciousness that apathy develops. And it just becomes the norm. Well, no, yeah. it's not even just apathy. It's something more than that, because people a lot of the time support it from the sense of if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to fear, because 
whether or not they're right, a lot of the people I have spoken to about this say, if it catches terrorists, I know I'm not doing anything wrong. Maybe it's for the best. And you can argue that, but... Yeah. Well, I have heard arguments of this, uh, this idea of privacy was a very unique 20th century idea that um, before and after it, privacy wasn't really a thing. So if you go back far enough in history, when you're living like in villages or tribes, everyone knew everyone and they knew everything about each other. So there's no privacy there. There was just a time where the technology in society was just right, where you could actually have true privacy. A development point between 50 years ago and now. Yes. And the second point I have to make about this paragraph is that, um, so you talk about the red tape, but also the doctor sort of fires that back at Carrington when he's like, oh, well, take it up with um, Quinlan's successor. And of course, that's going to take ages for that to happen. And he sort of leaves Carrington in the dust by being able to then go up in the rocket. I found that kind of funny that the Doctor mm. uses the exact same weapon that Carrington's been using most of the serial against him. Oh. It is nice that um, also red tape isn't painted as an inherently evil thing or terrible thing here. It 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 can be good if in in the right hands. Yeah, I like that. otherwise it's just yeah. a demoralising factor. Yeah, well, well, I mean, ultimately, you can't have let anyone have absolute power because bad decisions can be made. Like, okay, if you gave Cornish absolute power, he'd be good. But if you gave Carrington absolute power, that'd be bad. So it's good that there's red tape. That there's this bureaucratic inertia. That's good. What a lovely phrase, bureaucratic inertia. <clears throat> Lennox and Liz successfully fooled the conspirators to allow Lennox to escape and go to unit. The rocket launch is going ahead, so the doctor gets ready and the brigadier sees him off. All going very well until the conspirators rout Lennox and give him a lethal dose of radiation and then go to sabotage the doctor's launch by interfering with the fuel to make the ignition too explosive with the brigadier hot on their tail. But too late, the Doctor launches into space and then gurns a lot because of excessive G-force. So, I would like to talk a bit about how inane space travel looks in this. There's no real fanfare and there's a real big divide between the tech stuff and the Doctor who's in the spaceship saying, yes, 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 I'll press the button. So I'm going to talk about the public perception of space travel in 1970. Hmm. So in the early 60s and late 50s, when space travel really started to come about, the people who put themselves forward to be astronauts were seen as heroes due to the amount of willingness that they were putting themselves through. They were chosen due to their educational background, their technical training and their willingness to do something dangerous which kind of offset them a bit against most pilots. So they were kind of in a weird space in terms of the aviation industry. They were absolutely loved by the public. They were considered celebrities. But what was really hidden from the public at this time was the dullness of space travel. That was hidden from the public until 1979, about roughly, when you had more public exposure of themselves 
and they started to write their books. More stuff started to come out about it, and they were re-examined by the public as people who were kind of weird, and they were humanised a whole lot as scared and kind of loving of the technical side. Also, in the late 60s, once people go out into the moon, the whole love of space and the love of astronauts changed so much because, and I'm just going to bring this up, Brexit was massive in the media while it was a big crisis and there was stuff going on and whenever it went to Parliament, it was a big mess. Then the Johnson government came in and it kind of left the media quite a lot because it was it just sort of went through. You know, there's no more real easy narrative to say about it. So once the 60s are over, astronauts are far less relevant because as far as the public were concerned, the space race is over now. So the Doctor kind of being bored a bit of space travel, of course you can say how it reflects the Doctor's character, yada yada yada, but you could also say that the serial is really looking forward in the same way that it looked forward with its view of news. It's kind of saying that in the future, space travel is going to be less interesting. I think that's a really good reflection of where things were going in 1970 and how people were starting to think about it. Thoughts? Hmm. I, I, I like your idea of how um, we go from basically deification to humanization of astronauts. And I would try and argue, although very poorly, because, you know, it's just a random thought, um, that that might have occurred with the concept, with the character of the Doctor. Especially in this season, where um, you, you go from mysterious alien hero to John Pertwee's exiled Doctor, who's limited in his ability to do what he can do. Well, you can say that's partly down as well to the trends of science fiction at the time where everything was getting a lot less wacky and a lot more political and down to earth as we and i I might be even i might even be more controversial and say that we're definitely going down a more humanizing factor especially in new who oh definitely let's move on thanks to some jettison science and the Doctor's physiology, he survives the conspirators' sabotage and goes into space. He reaches Mars Probe 7 and begins to link up with it, but then an unidentified fleshy-looking spaceship approaches the Mars Probe and the recovery capsule on a collision course take evasive action. Yeah. What struck me here was that there wasn't any music, was there? With the space models and whatnot. No, there isn't. After the jazzy um, recovery link up in episode one. Yeah, I know, which was odd. I don't know why, they, especially considering what 2001 had been quite recent and people would associate scenes of being in space, you know, graceful movements in space with music. Hmm. Just odd. They've already done that earlier in the, ep- the serial, have music accompanying it. So it's just odd that it's in silence. That's Mm. an interesting point. Especially as we're nearing the end, the climax. I wonder if the whole um, music accompaniment and slow motion 
point represents how the public viewed the recovery capsules link up in episode one versus how we're seeing it through the doctor's perspective in episode five. I wonder if that's a differentiation point. So when, when you watch it as a member of the public, you think, oh, this is interesting. It's got jazz music in the background. Everything's all slow motion because you're anxious about what's going to happen when you link up with the Mars probe. Whereas with the Doctor, like, yeah, we've done this all before. It's basically normalisation, even though it's only the second time we've watched it in this serial. But it's the normalisation of space travel. Yeah, he's about to link up again. We know. Just get on with it. Which is interesting because it's the only time this season that we get anything spacey. That'll do. Thank you very much for watching. You can find us on Blogspot, which redirects to iTunes. Leave positive comments there, it helps. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube, where you can like, comment and subscribe. As I said, we shall be back next week with episode six of The Ambassadors of Death, where we try not to collide with an unidentified fleshy object. Until then, I've been Ben. I've been Luke. And I've been Nick. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you.